hear once again the word of our God. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord of his the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The death closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that have I that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Amen. May the Lord bless us from the reading and hearing of his word this evening. Before we turn our attention to the prophet Jonah, I'd like to focus on perhaps an unlikely figure. I'd like to direct your minds back to Pharaoh just for a moment. You remember when Moses goes first to Pharaoh. He sets before Pharaoh the simple command, the command from on high. Let let my people go, that they may serve me. That was the command. And you remember Pharaoh's response was twofold. Of course, there was that question, that blasphemous question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But you remember, that's not all that Pharaoh said, and that's not all that he did. He turned to the people, these people who supposedly, according to Pharaoh, wanted to serve the Lord. He turned to them, and his assumption was they didn't have enough work. In fact, it goes even a step further, doesn't it? His assumption was that if they were thinking about the things of God, they had idle time. They had free time. The principle behind that was just very simple, wasn't it? That only those who had free time would devote themselves to thinking about the things of Jehovah. Only those who had time to spare would waste that time on abstract things. That was Pharaoh's disposition. He looked at true religion as something only for the idle. It had no practical value. It was only something to do if one had time to waste. Friend, in services like these, Lord's Day morning and Lord's Day evening and on the midweek, we can hear that sentiment and we can shake our heads. We can recline in our pews and purse our lips and reflect on just how blasphemous such a sentiment is. But the cold reality is that kind of tendency is not found only among infidels. That tendency to think that the things of God are purely abstract, have no bearing upon reality. 
That to devote oneself to the things of God is to devote oneself to something that is somehow less concrete, of less value than other things, is a sentiment that we can find not only within these walls. Beloved, it's something that you and I find within our hearts if we even give ourselves to the slightest self-examination. Pharaoh's sentiment is alive and well and all. One of the things that we find in the scriptures is the word of God comes to us to pull us out from that kind of thinking. And we should be thankful that the Lord does that. And if we've looked at the prophet Jonah, and as we've taken up the second chapter, we've seen in various ways, and I trust this evening we'll see in even clearer ways, that's precisely what the word of God does. It shows us that the things of God are not merely abstract. They're not things that belong purely to the ethereal realm. These have real bearings, the things of God upon reality. And you remember, friend, in Jonah's case, this whole prophecy sets before us the reality that a man must repent. Really, this whole book is a primer, as I've said to you many times before, on that very fact. Repentance not in the abstract, repentance not in theory, but repentance in actual action. And repentance actually toward a living God. In response to real evil, real sin. That's what this book is about. And as we've looked at this, we've seen already both positive and negative examples. The Lord instructing us through the example of Jonah and the heathen mariners. But as we come to the second chapter of Jonah, we remember here we're not only given example, but that's part of it. Here we see a man really repenting. But we also see in this text the Lord giving us real concrete instruction. The Lord comes even through the prayer of Jonah, even in his time of affliction, to set before the people of God principles, real principles, principles that have bearing on the present. Now, as we've looked at those various principles, we've noticed several themes. We've noticed that the man who truly repents is a man who is also often chastened by the Lord. And as the man who is truly regenerate is chastened, The chastening at some time or another drives him back to the Lord. And we see that in the second chapter. We find here a man who has a real sense of sin. And then in an act of chastening, he knows something of a sense of desertion. That desertion coupled also with physical affliction. And all the while, and we've drawn attention to this time and again, through all of these difficulties, these pangs of conscience, this sense of desertion, Even the external afflictions, Jonah exercises faith. You'll notice three times in the chapter that we've looked at here, Jonah returns to the promises of the Lord as he responds to all of those things that seem to argue against his case. We see here then an experience both of sin and of prevailing grace. Well, as we come to these last three verses, as we conclude chapter 2, You remember what we've left. You remember in verse 7, the man not only facing external difficulty, he faces internal affliction, and this drives him to prayer. Now as you come to the 8th verse, the beginning of our text this evening, the focus changes. We move from simply a focus upon the Lord and Jonah, and we move now to those who he describes in the 8th verse as those who observe lying vanities. Then, a statement about himself in the ninth verse. And finally, in the tenth verse, a resumption of the narrative. 
We find out what takes place with regard to Jonah and the fish. As you look at this text, what you see here is a man who is reflecting. And also a man who once again falls back into a narrative. Falls back into service with the Lord. Now, as I draw your attention to those first two verses, I want you to know that there is a comparison that Jonah is making there. It is between those who are described in the 8th verse and himself in the ninth. And so I want us to look at that first of all. Who are those in the 8th verse? The text tells us they are those that observe lying vanities. The word observe there is to either keep or preserve, as in he shall give his angels charge over thee and keep thee. Or as it's translated in Psalm 16, preserve me, O God. They keep, they preserve. And what do they preserve? They preserve lying vanities. They keep lying vanities. Now in the scriptures, this idea of lying vanities is quite prominent. And that's this idea of something that is vain and deceptive is joined together to give us some very specific ideas. In the first case, predominantly, the scriptures use this phrase to describe the false gods. Just to give you an example, when speaking about false religion, the scriptures say in Jeremiah 16, The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth, and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Again, the Lord speaking, My people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to vanity. Now, that obviously is referring in both of those cases to the false gods of the nations. The imaginary deities that men have created after their own likeness. These are lying vanities, according to the scriptures. They are deceiving nothings, to translate it quite literally. But that's not the only sense in which this phrase is used. Also, when we find this phrase throughout the Old Testament, it describes not only those who are false gods, but it also describes false worship of the true God. I'll give you just two examples of that. If you look at Ezekiel 28, you find this. The prophets seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. Or Lamentations 2. Thy prophets, Judah, have seen vain and foolish things for thee. The words of our text. Mine hand, Ezekiel goes on to say, shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and that divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people. In other words, this idea of a lying vanity pertains both to those deities that are entirely fabricated and also to that fabricated and false kind of worship that men would give to Jehovah. Both, says the scriptures, are deceiving. Both are vain. Now what does he say? Those who observe lying vanities forsake. A friend, that word is quite specific. In the scriptures it always and only means to lose or to abandon. Always and only is that sense of the word. It is never to refuse outright. It is never to reject outright. Now why is that important? Well, we'll come to this in just a moment, but you'll see how, how the word is used in other scriptures like Proverbs 4. I give you, that is, it's in your possession, I give you good doctrine. Forsake ye not my law. Do not forsake that which I have given. 
which is in your possession. Again, Jeremiah 22. They have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God. In some sense, a covenant then possessed by them. Do not forsake. They have forsaken that covenant. Worship other gods and serve them. In other words, this sense, friend, the word that this, the word that comes to us in our text always and only means that it was something that was possessed in some sense before and then abandoned. Once possessed, then lost. Now what is it that they've forsaken? It says here in the text, they've forsaken their own mercy. Now, the word mercy there is, of course, the famous word chesed. And it's in the construct form, which just means this. It is possessive. It is theirs in some sense. It is really theirs in some sense, which agrees with the word forsake that came just before. It is theirs in some sense. Now, friend, it's striking is, as we look at the word mercy throughout the scriptures, almost always as it's in this form, is it describing the Lord's mercy. It is the Lord's mercy. That is mercy possessed by him, mercy over which he is entirely sovereign. In fact, only in one other case do you find even the Christian saying something about mercy that belongs to them. And that's in Psalm 59. The God of my mercy, says the psalmist. Psalm 59, 10 and 17. The sense is, this is mercy that is possessed by them, in some sense. Now, that's the wicked. They have, they keep, they preserve their either false gods or false worship, and in doing so they forsake mercy that was theirs, possessed by them in some way. Now we come to Jonah, verse 9. But, and that of course is the key that we're dealing here with a contrast, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Not only confession and gratitude is in view here. I want you to know that this word here is translated in Ezra 10 as confession, in Joshua 7.19, it means to give glory to God. In Psalm 42.5, it is the voice of joy and praise. The word here describes all the worship of God. It describes all that one would do as they come solemnly and more importantly from the heart to the Lord. It would include every element of worship as it were. And that's precisely what Jonah says he will do. He will genuinely worship the living God. Unlike those that he described in the 8th verse. He's entirely different. And then he says this, I will pay. That's a striking word there too. This is also another contrast. Note there in verse 8, the wicked keep their vanities. In verse 9, Jonah keeps his vows. Both keep something. But how radically different are they? And what does he say? I will pay that that I have vowed. Now, in one sense, friend, as we look at this, it is, I think, natural for us to assume that we're thinking about specific vows in this particular text. And we may very well be, but as we understand the idea of vow and the concept of covenant in Scripture, we understand that this can really be synecdoche, something that represents all of religion. And all that I direct your attention to is the very, the most basic summary of the covenant that God has with his people it's given, us, given to us in Hosea. Thou art my people. There is the Lord's promise. Thou art my people. And they shall say, 
Thou art my God. That is a vow. It is a relationship built upon covenant. And that really is the sum and substance of true religion. Of a genuine faith. Now, then in the ninth verse, you have the wonderful confession. Salvation is of, or as it is in Psalm 3, verse 8, it is or belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, then, is in many ways just an example of what you have in the ninth verse. As it were, something of an illustration. Note what the prophet tells us there. The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The emphasis really should be on what is going on in the first line of that verse. It is the Lord speaking. The narrator would have us know, Jonah, the prophet writing here, would have us know, if Jonah is delivered from this temporal affliction, it is the Lord who has done it. This one whom he's just previously said, all salvation belongs only to the Lord. Now as we step away from the text very briefly, I want to draw a few inferences. And the first one is, we need to identify the wicked of verse 8. My friend, if we look at this text, given what we've already said about the word forsake, and also given what we've said about the word mercy, as it is somehow possessed in some sense by those described there, we need to ask the question, who does Jonah really have in view? And friend, the answer to that question is not hard to come to. Only Israel had claim to divine mercy. And only Israel, and this is crucial, in the entirety of the scriptures, only Israel is described as forsaking God. The nations rebel against the Lord. The nations despise him. The nations spurn him and his law. But Israel alone is described as forsaking God. Because Israel had that peculiar privilege of claiming him as theirs. Possessing him in some sense. That is the only case, friend, in all the scriptures where you will find a people described as forsaking God. Those who were once, in an external sense, covenant people. The nations can spurn the Lord, but Israel alone can forsake covenant mercy. And so, friend, what Jonah is describing here in the 8th verse is quite specific, isn't it? He's really describing any who would forsake the covenant. The covenant to which they might belong externally, and which they have no internal interest. It describes evangelical hypocrites, that is, false professors in any age. Those who forsake their own mercy. Mercy they might claim to possess, but in actuality they don't. But then the second point, and this is crucial, is the confession of verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. Now friend, if you look at that text, of course it's a very broad statement, isn't it? Salvation is of the Lord. But as we look at it in its context, it does have a narrower meaning. I want you to just note that that confession comes precisely after the contrast is made between those who have forsaken covenant mercy and Jonah, one who is true, one who is faithful. And friend, as you look at this text, you're supposed to understand that we have here not just two kinds of behaviors contrasted, but we have two ends 
And those two ends elicit that that confession at the end of the ninth verse. What do I mean? Well, friend, just looking at 8 and 9 again. They who have held to their false religion, they have forsaken mercy. And they've taken themselves to something that will do them no good. But those who do not do so, who cling to the Lord, who worship him from the heart, Well, friend, the implication is, of course, they do possess mercy. They do worship the living God. Which means, friend, while one, their end is vain and merciless, the other, we're supposed to see, is nothing but a display of salvation. And this is what brings about the confession. Salvation is of the Lord. It is to be found only in the Lord. Any who forsake the Lord will not know this salvation. It is his and his only. But friend, as we come then to our theme this evening, as we hold these three verses together, what we see here is very clearly that the experience of believers and hypocrites show that salvation is only of the Lord. The experience of believers and hypocrites show that salvation is only of the Lord. And our two headings for this evening is just that, these two experiences, the experience of hypocrites and the experience of true believers. Now, friends, we look at this text, I've already told you before that we have here behavior given to us. They are those who keep, observe lying vanities. They keep to their false religion. And then here's their end. They forsake their own mercy. A mercy that in one sense they possessed it. In one sense, they may have laid claim to it, but they have forsaken it, really, by taking up their false religion. Now, friend, as we look at this text, what we see here is that these are those who forsake the Lord. And the prophet is very clear. In doing so, they have forsaken mercy. They have forsaken salvation. And their end bears that out. Their end bears that out. You could say it this way. The perishing of hypocrites show that salvation is only of the Lord. And I want us to see that under three subheadings briefly. First of all, friend, I want you to note that this is not something that is purely reserved for the end. The vanity of false religion is something that is evident even in the present, if not to the hypocrite himself. I mean, just take what the scripture says about an empty religion. They are, those who are involved in such, they are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He describes those Jews who are unbelieving, even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. They are barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, blind and cannot see afar off. They have a form of godliness, but not the power thereof. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Note what the scriptures say. This religion that they have that is purely external, purely formal, friend, this religion yields them no fruit. It yields them nothing in the present. That's the point. The vanity of it, even if it's not evident to them, should be evident to others. They have made a profession. They've engaged in some kind of worship. And even in the present, the vanity of that is demonstrated As the power of godliness is lacking, 
The veil remains upon their heart. The minds remain blinded. And they themselves, though they have a zeal, it is without knowledge. My friend, we can go even a step further than this, can't we? Take what we read from Hebrews 6. These are those who are described as being enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And the ones we're describing Hebrews 6 are the very selfsame ones we're describing Luke 8. Where Christ says, They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They have some positive experience. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. In other words, friend, what the scriptures hold out is that the vanity of their religion is a present reality. It is already the fact, already the case, that those who are forsaking the Lord, forsaking true worship from the heart, well, friend, they already in their lives bear the mark of their vanity. But secondly, we also have to understand that the scriptures hold out that present experience, in addition to these things, also hold out their futility. Take again Hebrews 6. A friend, this is a striking analogy that the prophet gives, the apostle gives us. In verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6, the apostle writes, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. And what is he saying there? Well, the simple meaning of that is just that here you have God sending rain to the earth, and that rain will fructify. That rain will be good for the ground that is properly seeded with herbs. Of course, the analogy that the Apostle is drawing is between the influence of the Word of God and the souls that receive that Word. But then note what he says in the very next verse. He says here, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. He's describing both cases. Both cases of people under the word of God, like these two soils under the same kind of rain. But one soil was seeded with herbs, fruitful, things useful. The other, well friend, it wasn't that they were seeded with good things. It wasn't that they were once good and became bad. That's why we understand Hebrews 6 is not talking at all about the possibility of losing one's salvation. It's rather this. That they sat under the word of God, even though the seed themselves itself was briars and thorns. All of the word of God was, was only to expose what was already there. Either grace in the one case, or in the other case, reprobation. The scriptures, in other words, are, as the apostle says, they are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, like the apostles themselves, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. You see what the apostle is saying? To some we savor of death, but even though we come preaching the very self-same word, to others we are the savor of life. Afraid, what do we make of that? Well, we see here in Isaiah 6, really an explanation of that phenomenon. Here the Lord says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. He says to the prophet, go and preach. Preach. Send that word. But the response will be hardening, not softening. The sense will be that you will only through that preaching see manifest tokens of my judgment, my spiritual judgment upon them. They will be under the word, but like that soil described in Hebrews 6, under the water and what should be the nourishing and refreshing waves of that word. Well, friend, all you'll see is thorns and briars. The hypocrites in the present bear this out. And friend, what, what solemn thought is that? That men and women are under gracious means, such as the preaching of the word of God, the sacraments, all of the means and ordinances God has established for the strengthening of his people. And yet instead of those being things for their good, it actually tends to their hardening. It's a solemn thought. As we come, then we also see too that the hypocrites in their eternal destruction show also that salvation is only of the Lord. You see, friend, the reality is their perdition takes place in spite of genuine offers of mercy. You see, it belonged to them in several ways. It belonged to them, first of all, because God genuinely offered that mercy to them. The offer of salvation in Jesus Christ was well meant when it came to them. It was theirs in that sense. It was theirs in the offer. It was theirs in many cases by profession. They professed it was theirs. They professed that they were among those who had taken hold of that by by a saving faith. And, friend, you could even say in some sense, because they had external experiences, they had some taste of that mercy external, even if it was not in hearing, as the, as the Apostle speaks in Hebrews 6. In all of these senses, we can say in some sense, externally, this mercy was theirs. And yet they perish. They perish. Friend, it only doesn't it demonstrate divine sovereignty. It shows us that a man can be under all of these things. A soul can be under all of these things. But the means will not save one. It is the Lord alone who saves. The Lord alone who saves. My friend, as solemn as that is, that does bring us to the experience of believers. Verse 8, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But, says Jonah, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving, and so on. The friend, in the 10th verse, you have, I think, very clearly the illustration of what Jonah has just said. You have that temporal deliverance, that relief out from underneath the rod. And again, that demonstrates, of course, that salvation is only of the Lord, even in its temporal case. Any temporal mercy that man knows, as every good gift does, only comes from the Lord. Verse 10 is an illustration of that very fact. But we can go much further, can't we? When we hold together what we have in verses 8 and 9 with what's all gone before, what do we find? A friend, we find a remarkable thing, don't we? We find a man 
who time and again is assaulted with all kinds of difficulties. We find a man who's not only externally externally afflicted, we find a man who internally also feels himself deserted. And friend, don't miss this either, that conscience also should be read between the lines. In other words, he's deserted, and because he makes no complaint to the Lord, we're supposed to understand here, of course, he recognizes that it's entirely right for him to be so. He's a man externally and internally afflicted. And yet what have we found? In spite of all of those things that might douse faith otherwise, the flame continues on. It's not extinguished. Through every assault it seems, yet the man perseveres. And friend, the reality is as we come to verses 8 and 9, we find especially in Jonah's determination that though he had sinned, though he had turned away from all means at one stage, and though himself under all kinds of difficulties and temptations in the second chapter, God by his grace has kept up that gracious affection that would have him obey the Lord, worship him from the heart with grace and truth. My friend, that teaches us that believers, too, show that salvation is only of the Lord. They profess this from the heart. Of course, friend, it is exactly as we say. The people of God cry as Jonah does here. If it had been, if it had not been that the Lord was on our side, now may Israel say, if it had not been that the Lord was on our side, what would have taken place? All of the difficulties would have overwhelmed us, the psalmist goes on to say. All of our enemies would have triumphed. But it's not so for the people of God. Why? Because our help is in the name of the Lord, the psalm concludes. That's the believer's profession. If I am spared, if I am saved, it is only of the Lord. In other words, friend, as we think particularly about our justification, it is precisely as the Apostle Paul says, this is the profession of the believer. This is how the believer cries from the heart what we have in our text. He longs just to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The believer cries from the heart, salvation is only of the Lord. He decries any righteousness, any meritorious righteousness of his own. This is his inmost cry. Salvation is of the Lord. And friend, the believer's life shows that truth by these professions. But there's another sense, too, in which the believer's life demonstrates that. And this brings us back to Jonah more specifically. Notwithstanding temptations, notwithstanding difficulties, they persevere in spite of weakness. Friend, make no mistake, that too is a demonstration that salvation is only of the Lord. Only of the Lord. You see, the Apostle puts it this way. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Why did he have the sentence of death under this external affliction? Why did he have it? Why, says the Apostle, just this, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. And of course, that's for the Apostle himself and all those that were with him. But does that not say something to the onlooking world as well? These are weak men. These souls are weak vessels. 
And yet they've somehow persevered. The flame has not burned them. The furnace has not consumed them. Surely there must be someone with them in the furnace to keep them. Someone like the Son of Man. My grace is Christ is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The glory of God's grace is actually demonstrated. The reality that salvation is only of the Lord is demonstrated concretely. In the fact that believers are weak and yet they persevere. It is, something, it is nothing less than a clarion cry without words. Salvation is only of the Lord. Fear not, worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, that they, the word they there that the prophet uses is supposed to be universal, encompassing all men, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. In other words, that salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. Worm Jacob, you would be crushed by the mountains. But you'll not be crushed so that men will know. It is my work alone. Salvation is only of me. And friend, not only do they in this life demonstrate that, but as they stand for unbroken years, as the aeons pass by and they stand round the throne, they only cry, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Note, friend, how clearly they are crying, salvation is only of the Lord. If we are saved, if we are here gathered around the throne for endless years, praising our God, it is only because you, O Jesus Christ, the one whose name is Savior for sinners, the one who is God's anointed to redeem us back to God, you only have brought this salvation. Only you. Only the name of our God extolled. And so, friend, the experience of believers in this life and in that to come cry just what Jonah does here. Salvation is of the Lord. Of Him alone. But as we close, friend, just two further thoughts. First of all, we understand that salvation is of the Lord in two senses. In this text, we understand it in two ways. It is only God who has the ability to impart this salvation. Only God who has the power to give it. But it's also the case that only God has the prerogative as well to give it. Both senses are in the text. Both senses, as it are, are demonstrated in the experience of hypocrites and the experience of believers in this time and for eternity. Beloved, for the believer, how is this manifest? Well, it's just manifest in this. That they themselves were once firebrands, and yet they're saved. They themselves were once children of wrath, and now they are made heirs of grace. It is only of the Lord that that could be. But friend, how do the reprobate see this? And how does their experience, as it were, signify the same truth? Solemnly, friend, it's just this. That it was 
as the Apostle puts it to us clearly here. It was this. Their reprobation is to show his wrath, to make his power known, to show that he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction. Salvation, even for the reprobate, is shown to be only of the Lord. Only of him. But as we close, there is a word of comfort for the believer in this text, and we can't miss this. Friend, the Lord is very careful to make sure that the believer's life, as well as his lips, set forth this truth. For his own glory's sake, the life and the profession of believers will only extol his name. Now, friend, see this in Jonah's case. Take a man just for a moment who is singularly afflicted and see how that affliction is so persistent and so violent. See a man here and see how he sinned himself against light, against former grace, against privilege. See a man how his devotion was shamed by newly converted heathens at the end of chapter 1. See a man whose conscience was pursuing him, his doubting fears tempting him, his external afflictions chastening him. And yet, friend, covenant mercy reached him. The Lord would not let him go, and none of those things were barriers to the Lord's gracious hand. Not one. My friend, that means, I mean, you look at Jonah, don't you? You have to say that his experience was unique. And yet, in spite of all of its uniqueness, their covenant mercy could be found. And beloved, that's to be consolation for you and I. If Jonah by experience would learn that salvation is only of the Lord, you and I who are part of that self-same covenant, who worship that self-same God, who look to that self-same Christ, can be assured that the same will be known by us. Your life too, friend, as you look to Christ, will demonstrate in this life and in the life to come, salvation is of the Lord. When we look at this text, from the clarion call that should have been received by Israel when it first came to them, that should be received by us now, is to believe not to forsake the Lord, that covenant mercy that is offered to us this evening, not to take ourselves to lying vanities, but to believe on the Lord and so be saved, and to do so time and again, to do so even through all kinds and manifold temptations, as Jonah does here. May the Lord lead us to do so for his name's sake, that all might know that salvation is only of him. Amen.